COVID, culture wars, climate change, we're cursed to live in interesting times. Thankfully, Spiked is here to make sense of it all and to push back against the tide of misanthropy, authoritarianism and identity politics. But we need your help to do that. We rely on donations from readers and listeners like yourself to keep our content freely available to all. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 per month is a huge help. So start donating now by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button. Now, onto the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Tory Slees, Joe Biden's first 100 days and the COVID catastrophe in India. He'd rather let the bodies pile high than order a third lockdown. The so-called chatty rat leak. Lavish renovations of the Downing Street flat. Text messages with James Dyson. I don't think there's anything to see here or to worry about. Sleaze, sleaze, sleaze. Days and days of this kind of coverage uh, not apparently making much difference at the ballot box. The Electoral Commission has launched an investigation into Boris Johnson and how he financed the refurbishment of his flat above Downing Street. The cash for cushions scandal is only the latest in a long line of allegations of sleaze, corruption and cronyism against the Tory government. Former Conservative PM David Cameron was caught lobbying the Treasury on behalf of the since-collapsed financial firm Greensill Capital. Johnson has been accused of giving special treatment to businessman James Dyson And the past year of the pandemic has provided plenty of examples of dodgy-looking procurement deals. The Cash for Cushions row has been part of a brewing Westminster Village spat between the Prime Minister and his ex-advisor, Dominic Cummings, as well as Cummings' rivalry with Boris's fiancée, Carrie Simmons. Every side of the story points to a Downing Street in disarray, beset by infighting and bereft of purpose. Tom, what have you made of this? Well, there's so many different strands to it, as you say. And I think on the one hand, the way in which that the government has handled this and the kind of things that these stories and leaks have revealed do look bad. They've been incredibly cagey as well, trotting out the same line over and over again. Um, And if anything, making the situation far worse for themselves by seeming to be untransparent. Obviously, the Electoral Commission investigation certainly raises the stakes and we wait to see what that turns up, despite the fact it's hardly a trustworthy institution given the (laughs) recent years. But... Whilst, as I wrote about on Spike this week, I think this broader spat does reveal a lot about the disarray in this government, really giving the lie to the idea that it was going to be different and transformative. I do have to say that the media glee of all of these stories is starting to get a bit much. I mean, we've had so much of it so far. Of course, it's going to start to cut through with voters. But what we do have here are essentially Westminster gossip and alleged minor breaches of rules being elevated to the status of kind of high drama. That's not to say what the government has done in any of these instances might not have actually happened and might not have been true and wrong and unethical. But if you take something like the cash for cushions situation, really this is a row about slightly convoluted means through which the Prime Minister may or may not have got a Tory donor to finance his refurbishment. Mm. It wasn't in relation to public money. And again, it's the attempt to kill the story, which has become more embarrassing for him, really. And in the broader discussion, with all of these different leaks combined, 
you would get the impression that this government invented telling a few porkies, invented cosy relationships with lobbyists, and that sleaze was something which had never existed before this government came in. I mean, the attempts by Labour to paint this as the continuation of the kind of Tory sleaze scandals of the 1990s, the kind of tail end of the John Major years, full flat when you take a look back over the new Labour years. Tim Black wrote about this on Spike this week, you know, the cash for honours scandal, which was the thing that led Tony Blair to finally leave office in a fair amount of disgrace. You know, the fact that the new Labour government were barely in office when it was revealed that Bernie Eccleston, the F1 magnate, made this huge donation. And then coincidentally, apparently, F1 was magically exempted from the ban on tobacco advertising. So these things have been around for a long time. You don't have to be a cynic to just point out that the heightened focus on this, the attempt to suggest that Boris Johnson has ushered in a kind of Putin-esque kleptocracy (laughs) and level of corruption is ridiculous, is politically motivated, and is largely a result of the fact that a lot of the people in the media have either personal or political beefs with him. And of course, a lot of people in politics have quite clear beefs with him. When you're in a situation where you see Alistair Campbell going on the BBC and insisting they report on the Prime Minister's lying, you realise that we've reached (laughs) a slightly bad faith discussion, shall we say. So putting to one side almost the things that the government has done wrong in all of this stuff, which is quite clear, I think the attempts to turn this into this huge scandal such as it is do fall a bit flat, not least given the people who are trying to turn it into a huge scandal, if you like. Ella? The response has been sort of two extremes. Um, I was listening to Radio 4 the other morning and had to get a bucket in case I was going to be sick listening to Philip Collins and Sarah Vine on the one hand of an extreme, talking about how, you know, unfair it was that we treat our politicians so badly. <laughs> Sarah Vine infamously said, you know, you can't expect Boris Johnson and Carrie Simmons to live in a skip, you know, referring to the state of the flat um, the when John Theresa Lewis May furnishing. left it, you know, the John Lewis nightmare. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, I'd like to live in that skip. Philip Collins, you know, making it very political, saying that we don't pay enough respect to our politicians, that actually we should be giving them more money, that they end up living in undignified circumstances, <laughs> referring to David Cameron, who's, again, whose shed is nicer than most flats in London. So there was that, that kind of was bizarre. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, the Labour Party and Kirstarmer in particular, rubbing their hands with glee over the, you know, basically rattling Johnson a little bit at PMQs this week, and, you know, hoping that this will be their moment to bring about his downfall that as you know this is the the most important thing the the question of renovations and, and corruption no actually no one's talking about even green sill stuff like that anymore mm. it's all focused on johnson and carry is just absolutely ridiculous and people commentators and news presenters keep saying Oh, it's so fascinating that there's no cut through with the public. You know, polls show that actually the, no one really cares about this and politicians haven't had emails coming into their inbox in the same way that they did when the whole Dominic Cummings scandal and Barnard Castle came about. You know, why don't people care? And it's because the conversation is happening in these two extremes. Either you have to feel deeply sorry for the plight of politicians that have to deal in this fractious world and why shouldn't they have nice curtains? Or on the other hand, this being the most corrupt thing ever. But actually the answer is is actually a lot more dispiriting. I mean, Tom's mentioned the history of corruption in the Labour Party and other you know, political parties. You don't even have to go back that far. I mean, this year we've had Labour and Liverpool and we've had the SNP 
in terms of you know examples of political scandals and political corruption. And I, I get the feeling that people are actually just a bit apathetic about all of this. That it, there's a kind of cynicism that this is what politicians do. They you know they fiddle with money. They they you know give handouts to their friends. It's all about who you know, and that is a problem. You know, if there's that level of cynicism about politics, it's not simply just about the money and spending in the wrong places or jobs for the boys and that kind of situation. It's about the political implications of this, as Tom says, which is that if you have a, a time of real crisis, you know, coming to the end, hopefully, of a pandemic, when there are big political issues at stake, and the governing party is in such disarray that they're kind of having a spat about curtains and carpets, and the, the general population is sort of apathetic about this and doesn't doesn't really have that much trust in politicians. That's the real problem, the question of trust, the question of cynicism, not necessarily who did or didn't get money from whom to renovate a flat. Obviously, the, the renovations has drawn in more revelations about Carrie Simmons. She's supposedly the one demanding the renovations. She's been portrayed as quite kind of highly strung and, and demanding in, in the press. But I think I'm less worried about her kind of fashion tastes than the influence she supposedly has over the government, which, you know, some of the other leaks that have come out about her, basically, you know, Boris refusing to reveal who leaked the story of the last lockdown because it was a friend of Carrie Simons. And so, and he doesn't want to get in her bad books. We've also seen the, the way the government has sort of drifted from this kind of Brexit populist government to a kind of save the otters green mush. I mean, a lot of people will blame Carrie Simmons for that, but really at the heart of this is the hollowness of Boris. And perhaps that's why, you know, number 10 is such disarray as well. Why there are so many, you know, sort of scandals going on, why things have seemed to just be falling apart left, right and center. Now, previously, you might have said that actually the, the shallowness of Boris could have been an advantage. You know, when there was the pressure of the electorate weighing on Boris to get Brexit done, you could kind of tolerate his uh, lack of own personal beliefs. But now that we've all been put under house arrest and, you know, the public has essentially been abolished and there's only the pressure from Carrie Simmons in his ear, that suddenly reveals, you know, a real hole at the heart of Downing Street, a real hole at the heart of this government. Mm. I I suppose we should point out the allegation about who leaked the November lockdown ahead. The suggestion that it was someone close to Carrie Simmons, namely her best friend, Henry Newman, who has since been made a senior advisor in number 10. That's coming from Dominic Cummings, obviously, yeah. who is a focus for the leak inquiries, who again is suspected of making his leak himself. Who knows who to trust in all this? But in, in a way that underlines your point, Fraser, is that this has become like a kind of Tudor court mm. where for a while the vote leave faction were in the ascendancy and were running things, but then get pushed out by Carrie Simmons and the people close to her. And that in concert with that, as we saw when Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane left number 10 last year, you saw the agenda almost turn on a dime yeah. in, in relation to some of these key issues, certainly in relation to the things that were being upfronted and emphasised, as well as a kind of more conciliatory approach, all the rest of it. And again, it does speak to the absence at the heart of government, which is the absence at the heart of Boris Johnson in terms of what it is he actually believes. And this is something I think which just really gives the light to the idea that Boris Johnson said when he won back in 2019, which was that this was a people's government. It was mm. going to do things differently. Now it's just descended into the kind of infighting, bitchiness and high drama over Westminster village rule breaking stories that we've come to know for a very long time. So many people tried to suggest that the Boris Johnson regime is so strange, aberrant, more corrupt than previous ones. In a way, a big problem is it's a lot more like the previous ones than a lot of people would like to admit. Mm. And that's something which is actually quite depressing. 
as these leaks and these stories continue to wash over a slightly uninterested public. I love the feeling I get when I learn something new, that aha moment. It's so satisfying and empowering. With The Great Courses Plus, I can experience that feeling whenever I want. Recently, I've been enjoying the course World War II, The Pacific Theatre, produced in partnership with History. The story of the Pacific Theatre is a bloody sequence of raids and epic battles, invasions and onslaughts, all aided by the deadly tools of war. From 1941 to 1945, Japan and the United States waged the largest naval war in history. This course leads you through the evolution of naval warfare, looking at each nation's strategies and tactical advantages, from advanced weaponry to sheer willpower. I want you to try The Great Courses Plus for yourself. There's so much knowledge to tap into. You're going to love it. And with The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video lectures on virtually anything that interests you. You can learn chess from an expert, explore the cosmos, even get tips on how to train your dog. The possibilities are endless. And with The Great Courses Plus, the content is all thoroughly vetted, fact-based information you can trust. It comes from some of the best professors and top experts in their field from all over the world. Plus, you can download the Great Courses Plus app and watch or listen on any device anytime you want. I want you to experience that aha moment for yourself. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today to start your 14-day free trial. And for a limited time, listeners to the Spiked podcast can save 20% on an annual membership. But this is only available through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked to find out more. Don't forget thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Joe Biden reached his 100th day in office this week. This was never going to be an ordinary presidency. His inauguration arrived amid a raging pandemic and an economic catastrophe. Fans of Biden often expressed relief at the return to so-called normalcy after four turbulent years of Trumpism. But at the same time, they'll praise Biden, the moderate Democrat, for being unexpectedly radical. Most eye-catching has been Biden's $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act, which he's already pushed through Congress, and there's another proposed $4 trillion of investment and spending to come. The incoming administration promised radical reform of immigration, but was not prepared for a record surge in unaccompanied children arriving at the border. Biden has also promised aggressive action on climate change, signing America back up to the Paris Agreement. And on foreign policy, Biden has pledged to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. Tom, is there anything you'd like to highlight from the first 100 days? Well, there's so much as you say. I think one thing that's worth looking at specifically is the discussion around identity politics, Mm. racial politics, racial division in America. Because really, this was one of the key arguments for Biden amongst the kind of anti-woke liberal set, if you like. There was this 
claim that was made by Yasha Monk and others, effectively saying, if you hate wokeness, then vote for Biden because he's a moderate. He's going to calm things down. Mm. Trump is like lighter fluid onto a dumpster fire in terms of the culture wars. He inflames everything, you know, not without cause insofar as he could be quite inflammatory on a lot of these <laughs> issues around immigration and race and what have you. But they've been proven categorically wrong in relation to all of this. I think we really saw that over the past couple of weeks with the Derek Chauvin trial yeah. and the Makai Bryant shootings. First of all, you had Joe Biden make this incredibly irresponsible intervention whilst the jury were deliberating, effectively saying that he was praying for the right result, not let justice be done, not we trust the jury to render their verdict, but effectively trying to put his thumb on the scale a little bit. I mean, this is really shocking stuff. And again, I think is something which could only really inflame the situation, particularly if the jury ended up not delivering the verdict that a lot of people obviously wanted. And then you had the Makaya Bryant shooting where I can't remember the exact timeline, but even at a point in which a lot of the details weren't clear, obviously it later transpires that the point at which this 16 year old girl was tragically shot by police. She was lunging at someone with a knife. You still had his press secretary come out and her response to the shooting was not to say, we wait to see what happens, trying mm. to calm tensions, etc., was just to say that, yes, we need to tackle systemic racism in the police and society. So what I think we've really seen through from, you know, his executive orders when he first got into office, you know, rescinding the ban on critical race theory and the federal bureaucracy through to a lot of his statements since then, given the fact he hasn't made a hell of a lot of public statements, it should be said. Yeah, just one press conference, the longest in history, actually, he left between, you know, assuming office mm. and doing a press conference. So he's reluctant to speak to the public. <laughs> <laughs> very, very striking. But he has made a point of not just trying to dodge the culture war in a way mm. that Keir Starmer has been trying to do or or trying to kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. He has given this woke cultural politics the presidential seal of approval. And I think the ongoing unrest that we've seen and the ongoing kind of tension which has engulfed America is something which is really now taking place in part because of the approval and the fuel that he is giving to it. So I think one of those core arguments that was made for him, certainly from the kind of anti-woke set of people who said that people should vote for him. That's just been completely destroyed so far. And it feels like a Joe Biden presidency, aside from any of the other issues I'm sure we're about to talk about, is going to deepen those divides rather than bridge them. And despite the fact that was one of his key promises when he was finally elected to office. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's fascinating how, you know, unexpectedly kind of socially radical he has been in that, in that context. But it, it's interesting to hear people saying that he's economically radical because I can't get on board with that view. Um, I think th that is wildly overstated. I mean, the American Rescue Plan, as large as it is, you know, trillions of dollars, has to be put in the context of the fact that in America, there was no furlough scheme in the same way, you know, that in Britain and much of Europe, the government has been paying people's wages. That didn't happen in the US. There was, you know, record unemployment. So the kind of relief that it offers in terms of increased unemployment aid, you know, stimulus checks to every American. I mean, it's necessary and so much more urgent than it, you know, elsewhere in the developed world. But, you know, that context is often missing. It's often seen as this standalone thing that is going to change the American economy radically. And I think that that just goes way too far. You know, we're getting ahead of ourselves in thinking that increased public spending is some kind of challenge to economic orthodoxy, some kind of challenge to capitalism. It's the kind of thing that economists at the IMF have been talking about and been demanding for years. You know, the very same people who 10 years ago were calling for austerity measures. And, you know, there's a big, big difference between what is happening right now under Biden, where, you know, the government is essentially propping up the private sector and, say, nationalising 
the economy. And, you know, really the Biden kind of economic response is an extension of what happened after the financial crash, you know, where we bailed out the banks, we bailed out the auto sector. That's just been brought into the wider economy. So I think saying that is radical, weirdly, it manages to excite both, you know, the kind of financial times and the radical left, you know, that is itself a reeling. The Republicans can't come up with a coherent response to it. So I think that, you know, some of the overheated claims made about the economy are very, very premature. Ella? Yeah, I think that's a really important point that a handout in the time of a pandemic, a time of unprecedented crisis is not radical. It's, it's the, it's the bare minimum, really. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that the, in particular, the stimulus checks will mean, you know, estimated $1,400 for each American. It's nice. That's good. It, it will help, certainly, but it's a very short term solution. It's a sticking plaster because there will have been some real deep and lasting changes hap- that have happened in the last year in terms of employment, in terms of companies and whole areas of employment, all types of jobs coming to an end because of the way in which the, the damage of successive lockdowns has affected the economy. Phrases made me laugh about comparing that, the, you know, the FT with the radical left. I mean, John Sopel, BBC's North America editor, has written this article, which, which is fascinating, which he says uh, that Joe Biden isn't the kind of snooze fest, even though he sort of, he talks about the fact that going from Trump to Biden in terms of press conferences is like going from a daily crack pipe to a small bottle of low alcohol beer once a week. <laughs> he says it's, it's brilliant that actually that things are boring because the era of Trump was a bit exhausting. But he says the reason why Biden is so fascinating is because he's quiet, because he hasn't rocked the boat, but also because he's done these sort of, well, as, as Sopel describes them, sort of uh, behind the scenes, almost softly, softly measures that make him look like a benefactor. You know, this massive kind of spending is like, it's the, it's the extension of the friendly Joe Biden. It's going to help you out in times of need kind of facade. But the important point about that is if you look at, for example, Joel Kotkin wrote about this in Spiked this week. If you look at the long-term plans of Biden, in particular, you know, this whole question of the Green New Deal Mm. and the fact that much of the public spending is tied up in things that are, you know, working towards a green economy, cleaner jobs, all this kind of thing. The, the effect that that will have on the average working American, you know, uh, on a low income, on a job that has, you know, potentially involved in the energy sector at the moment is devastating. I mean, the kind of the plans to meet climate change, um, directives and to meet, you know, net zero carbon, whatever it is they call it, it will mean a complete change of life and a complete change of quality of life for many, many Americans. And that's not really being, talked about. So while Joe Biden might not have rocked the boat so much in his first 100 days and has, you know, perhaps given a handout here, done a little bit of good there. and But in terms of the lasting and the, the long-term plans for the economy, his dedication to the kind of idea of greenwashing stuff, of climate change, of signing up to COP26, all these things will have a very detrimental effect on uh, working Americans. And that's really being neglected. Tom? Well, I think the other thing that's interesting is just how things have changed kind of around government and the way in which it's talked about, the media being a really key one, because mm. it seems to have swung from being so incredibly hostile to Trump, much of that earned, much of that hysterical at the same time, way through to the other side, which is frankly quite supine in relation to the Biden administration when yeah. it was coming in and since. We saw in over the past week, the Washington Post um, suspend its kind of official fact checker project. It's worth noting they're going to they say they're going to continue to report on what the president says and when he utters full statements. 
but given the end of the Trump era, they no longer need to do it, which is a slightly strange thing to do, not least because Joe Biden, at least by dint of um, his slightly cloudy brain, shall we say, is a bit of a misinformation machine. You know, mm. he announced there are 230 million thousand COVID deaths in America at one point, whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> you know, a fact checker might be useful for other reasons in relation to the Biden administration. And that's something which I think really needs to be taken up because the way in which the, the corporate media in America were wetting themselves with excitement when this administration came in gave a clear indication that that level of scrutiny was not going to be there. And also the level of scrutiny from the left, as you say, it has been remarkable, not only that they've been so won over by this idea that he is the new FDR and he's so incredibly economically radical, which is nonsense for the reasons that you were explaining. But, you know, you rebranded migrant detention centre and overflow facility and suddenly <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thinks it's fine now. Yeah, It's had a really interesting effect. Essentially, the kind of anti-Trump hysteria seems to have cleansed someone like Biden of all sins mm. in the eyes of loads of people for loads of different reasons. And I think that position that he kind of maintains at the moment is something which is going to guard him against scrutiny, which is going to lead to a situation where social media companies, etc., which as we know are very close to the Biden administration, continue to suppress more critical voices around him and his politics. And that's something which is going to soar up a hell of a lot of trouble, I think, free discussion for debate for politics more broadly, given so much has been invested in this kind of absence of a man purely because of what people feel is the horror show that he replaced. That just doesn't feel like a particularly healthy place to be in. Over the past few decades, society has undergone huge shifts. It used to be the case that private citizens were largely that, private. But thanks to the internet, everything has changed. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted – now, imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. That's your record. Having your private life exposed for the consumption of others used to be something only celebrities had to worry about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I use ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't even have to tell you who they're selling your data to or even get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP address to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn on ExpressVPN, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it much more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is ExpressVPN is just incredibly easy to use. No matter what device you're on, your phone, your laptop or your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself now with the number one rated VPN on the market. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash spiked, you can get an extra three months of protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. Go to expressvpn.com slash spiked to learn more.
India's second wave of the coronavirus is surpassing a number of grim global milestones. Almost every day, it's setting new global records for daily case numbers. On Wednesday, more than 360,000 cases were registered. Over 3,000 people are dying every day too, and this is almost certain to rise in line with the cases. India's underdeveloped health infrastructure has been overwhelmed. Beds, drugs and oxygen are all scarce. Ironically, India has the largest vaccine factory in the world, but most of the vaccines produced there are exported to the developed world. Only recently, the UK was lobbying India to release more vaccines, and one of Britain's envoys even caught COVID while he was out there. The US, meanwhile, has had an export ban of essential raw materials for vaccine production to India, and now much of the West, while sending token gestures of aid, is admonishing India for being irresponsible in failing to contain the virus. Ella, what have your thoughts been on this? It's been really awful watching news footage of scenes of what's going on in India. In particular, it's been really moving watching all the massed funeral pyres almost piled in on top of each other. It really brings home what level of crisis India is in at the moment. But compounding that kind of horror has been, I think, the response from the West in particular, you know, on the one hand, trying to, as you mentioned in your column uh, this week, Fraser, the UK trying to portray itself as being sort of generous and, and offering aid by giving kind of paltry numbers of, you know, 495 oxygen concentrators um, and 120 ventilators and suggesting that that's, you know, that's us doing some good. And then on the other hand, as you say, columns all over the place and commentators using their words to criticise India, to criticise Narendra Modi for, you know, repeatedly not wearing a mask, for there being a a maskless uh, trend in India and that people are just being irresponsible, completely neglecting the obvious reason why this horror is happening in India. Because of one, the state of healthcare mm. there, the fact that on a normal day before the pandemic, Indian hospitals are not the place that you really want to end up, many of them, because there's such shortage of staff, the quality of healthcare there is so poor. You know, even things like, you know, sanitation being a real problem, all those things. And also the level of wealth in the country, the fact that there is absolutely no point for anyone to call for a lockdown right now, when lockdown for many, many Indians means being, you know, cooped up in poor quality housing with 12 to a house or something like that. It's just, it's ridiculous to suggest that any of the measures that we might be bleating about in, in the UK or in America or in uh, European countries could have the same effect in India. It's a completely different situation. And the real question is, what do you do now? What really can the West do or the UK do to help? And the main thing is to ensure that there are enough vaccines. I mean, again, in your column, Fraser, you mentioned the fact that, you know, India has vaccinated, you know, a certain amount, but it's a, it's a population of billion. Mm. And the, the fact that many European countries in the UK in particular are still holding on to this idea that we have to vaccinate everyone, even children <laughs> in our country before we can be in any way generous with sharing vaccines internationally is just ludicrous. You don't have to go down the kind of selfish route. But just in terms of a kind of charitable but internationalist outlook and that their problem is our problem, that this is a global issue, we should just be sending as many vaccines there or indeed encouraging them to use their own vaccines rather than having them exported to us. Tom? There's been a really ugly aspect to this discussion, which is almost like a kind of neo-colonial smugness, which Mm. has been met with the horrendous situation that India finds itself in. There was this report on Channel 4 News, I think it was, 
almost kind of sniggering at the fact that the UK and others were sending all of this aid to India, despite the fact that Modi's watchword and byword was autonomy and self-sufficiency. Similarly, you know, you cast my back to just a week ago when you had that interview with Angela Merkel before obviously all, all of this really kicked off. Again, kind of castigating India for not necessarily releasing the vaccines that it was producing and suggesting that we only allowed India, in her <laughs> words, to become a pharmaceutical power in the hope that these sorts of agreements would be complied with. And I think what we've seen over the course of the past couple of days is that kind of real neo-colonial approach to India just coming back to the surface. And again, it just being used as a very cheap political way to bash Modi, who's seen as this kind of embodiment of global populism. It's not to say, of course, that he hasn't done things wrong over the course of this pandemic. Of course he hasn't. It's not to say that he's a stand-up guy by any stretch of the imagination. But again, just avoiding the obvious facts, as you've both pointed out so far, which is that in a situation of a pandemic, countries which are underdeveloped and therefore have underdeveloped health systems are going to be more susceptible to this level of crisis in the mm. same way that underdeveloped nations are going to be more susceptible in times of natural disaster. Yeah. This is obvious to anyone. And yet it's just become a kind of opportunity almost to obviously mourn. There's been an element of it feeding the kind of COVID fear porn, which is always a kind of tendency that the media likes to indulge in from time to time. Even in this case, up to the point of filming dead bodies and all this kind of stuff, which is quite grotesque in my view. But the kicker to it is, as I say, this kind of neo-colonial smugness, these masses of idiots and their populist leader getting it so wrong, despite the fact that the kind of broad reasons why India is in such crisis at the moment is fundamentally a long-time crisis of development, um, yeah. something which actually many people in the West didn't want it to develop that much in the first place. So there's a lot that surrenders to this. But yes, you just hope there'll be more international solidarity, proper solidarity, proper actual, you know, helping India get itself out of this mess via vaccines, etc. But as Ella was saying, the kind of lockdown fanaticism of the West has closed that off entirely. And I just don't see how any government can really reopen that conversation with their own domestic publics given that they're still maintaining a position that even after you've been vaccinated twice, you can't sit in the same room as someone else. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, you, How do you, you get out of that? You might be able to take off your mask outdoors if you've had uh, <laughs> two, two shots of the vaccine. Yeah, no, it is, it is crazy. It is such a horrible situation because the what's going on in India compounds the fear in the UK and that makes us even more reluctant to help out and to, and to say, actually, we've done enough. There's an acceptable level of risk now. You know, the risks have been mitigated to such an extent by the fact that like 70% of people in Britain now have antibodies. It's really time to get out there and open up and get on with it. And it is worth remembering, you know, India did have a lockdown sometime last year and it was a complete catastrophe. Tens of millions of people were displaced. And it seems that that is just completely forgotten about when you have the likes of Emily Maitlis finger wagging at some Indian representative telling them they're irresponsible, hearing that India is a failed state every 10 minutes, or Nick Robinson was on the Today programme accusing some BJP representative of being more Trump than Biden. And we all know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just such a horrible situation where there's so much hypocrisy, there's so much kind of neo-colonial sneering. And we're trapped by our own fears, preventing us from, from doing good, essentially. Ella? There's a suggestion that the decision to lock down has you know, fueled deaths in India, in particular because the way in which 
so many workers move around that them going back to their homes from kind of urban centers actually spread the virus, which, you know, there's, it's just a great example of there being no attention to detail or the specifics of a situation. Everyone just, you know, says lockdown immediately without looking at what actually lockdown might mean in specific countries. It means something completely different in India than it does in the UK. But just as a side issue, um, it's, you know, it's not an immediate thing, but it's an important thing. Been thinking about, you know, the, the aspect of free speech and censorship in all of this, because I remember earlier on in the pandemic, there was a real fear that particularly in India, that Facebook and social media groups was fueling COVID conspiracy theories. Mm. And there was this real danger that people using Facebook and reading misinformation on Facebook was going to uh, have a negative effect on the pandemic, that there was going to be, you know, the spread of conspiracy theories. And there's a suggestion that it should be regulated. Well, fast forward to now, and the Indian government is using Facebook and Twitter to censor criticism of its handling of the pandemic. I mean, going as far actually in terms of censorship as to arrest people for spreading misinformation. There was a 26-year-old in Uttar Pradesh who was arrested for appealing on Twitter for an oxygen cylinder. So paranoid and so censorious is the Indian government at the moment that it wants to clamp down on any suggestion that it might be handling things badly. But it's, you know, maybe this is a crass point, but it's a real example of why you have to have open debate about the pandemic and the handling of coronavirus because it's quite clear that things are going very, very wrong in India. And the fact that people aren't able to talk about it is also part of the problem. There's no discussion about how you might use different measures, do different things. Instead, there's just this real censorship and saying you know, no one can talk about the way in which it's handled. And that's reflected, to make a link to the way in which we've handled it, that's been reflected in the UK. I mean, the whole kind of COVID idiot discussion is to the suggestion that there can be no criticism, no debate about the way in which governments handle this, that we all have to kind of artificially play along with the idea that there is one way of dealing with with a pandemic. And, you know, moving forward, if it, we can learn something from this, it's that in particular, censoring opposing views or censoring criticism at a time like this is only going to lead to a bad end. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.